You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it. Um, we've been, uh, well, say read. I've been listening um, just because it's a little bit easier. <laughs> um, but I kind of know where we are. Um, but yeah. That's helpful. <laughs> yeah. 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 So how, how are things going over well, there? It, standard chaos. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I I don't ever know what's going on one day from the next, so I'm just you know kind of along for the ride over here. This these mornings are like the only mornings I go. Nothing else is supposed to happen to, right now. Sure. So every the rest of the day, it's like I'm on call, and you know it, it is what it is. And hopefully, um, you know, I keep saying life's going to calm down at some point. I think I'm just lying to myself right now. So who knows? Yeah, I've accepted that it's it's probably not, and. Uh... Just got to keep doing things. So <laughs> I think I got to keep the hope alive so I don't go crazy. So, <laughs> well, yeah, fair enough. So speaking of hope, I think we're going to be talking a little bit about some of that going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, told me yeah, what, you told me what we're covering this week, and uh, I thought, how are we getting a whole episode out of that? But I know the Psalms tend to be dense. <laughs> uh, we're in Psalm 3, which is not very long, but... Uh, curious to see what you got for us. It's yeah, it's not a long psalm, and uh, you know, we're we're making this switch here because traditionally there's this belief that David wrote this particular psalm while he was fleeing from Jerusalem when Absalom had invaded, and we're going to talk about um, you know why that might make a little bit of sense, and I, I think it's a it's a good psalm. I, I think for me in this season in particular, it was like a good psalm. And I always think it's funny how, you know, we think, oh, we got everything planned out and we know what, you know, our Bible studies even kind of seem to, you know, follow along these quote unquote predictable paths. But then so often, like this time, it fits. It, it kind of worked into the proper season of my life. And I, I really, uh, you know, it, it was, it's kind of a God thing. Let's, let's just put it that way. So, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so Psalm three credited to David, we already talked about that. And, uh, you know, the reason why we say it's credited to David is because of the superscription. And we've talked about in previous episodes, how much credibility do we give to the superscription? I mean, were they added later? Were they part of an oral tradition that was faithful to the history? Or was it some scribe said, hey, look, this kind of fits David's life, so let's just attribute it to him and let's put it in his life at this point. Um, I don't think we're ever going to be able to lay that argument to rest. But it is interesting to note some of the reasons why we might accept that it was written by David and why we might reject that. So I, I think those are good things to look at and kind of question and and realize how do biblical scholars come to their conclusions? And, you know, biblical scholars did not get their information from God coming down from heaven and saying, thus saith the Lord, this is how you interpret it, or this is what you should think about it. 
and apply it, they're people. And they're people who have asked questions of the text over and over again. And they've been learning how to think about the text and learning how to bring all these different pieces together to make a fuller picture and then share that picture with students and audiences and what have you. So when we learn how to look at the scripture critically and we learn how to read these things, we, we aren't being unfaithful to what the Bible shows us. We're actually just trying to grab hold of those threads so that we can have a better understanding of the totality of what it says rather than being guilty of proof texting. And little note on proof texting, I was actually thinking this week because you know, right now, uh, I think particularly, and not to date the show too much, but particularly with COVID, there's a lot of theories about how this plays into biblical prophecy. And some of them are ridiculous. Let's just be honest about that. I was really worried and, you were going to like go on a, a talk about just <laughs> COVID. I'm like, I do not want to talk about that on the podcast. There's enough people covering <laughs> this right now. In good no, and bad no. ways, but um, anyway, go, go on. I'm sorry. Well, uh, the reason why these, these theories about what the Bible has to say gain traction is because as a whole, the Christian culture within the United States has not been taught to think about what their Bible says. They've not been taught to study it cohesively and in context. And so people add a Bible verse to something and all of a sudden it's a thus saith the Lord kind of moment. and if you mm -hmm. actually studied the Bible, you wouldn't be taken for this ride and be led astray. I don't care that we're talking about COVID, we're talking about, you know, the Pope being the, the, the Antichrist or Barney being the Antichrist. This is how people get led astray. It, it's by, you gave me a look there. There's actually a theory about how the Barney, the purple dinosaur, the, num the numerology adds up to 666. So, I mean, people actually do this and people fall for it. So, you know, this is why we are doing what we're doing, because we want you to know your Bible and we want you to be able to make informed decisions about what it has to say and how do you live these truths that are revealed. So. Now that I've gone on that rabbit trail, because this has been bugging me <laughs> a lot, and um, I just, I, I don't, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to know more. I mean, if this is the truth that God's given us, then we need to, to be digging in. So now one of the objections about David writing this is that possibly it's too soon in the book of Psalms. I mean, it's Psalms 3. And we would know that if it's being written by David, during his lifetime, it would be closer to the end of his reign. Okay. Okay, that's not even an argument. We already know things have been correlated <laughs> differently than the timeline order. Um, exactly. Yeah. I was. Yeah, I was, I was actually just thinking about that the other day, uh, or yesterday, I guess, because I was thinking about things with the podcast and how I try to think of uh, – when things happen, and I'm like, did that happen when we recorded the podcast, or did that happen when we released that episode? I'm not sure, because it kind of goes back and forth. I'm like, and then my thought was, this is kind of like the biblical timeline. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> it's hard to to put it all together, and that was, figured you'd appreciate that joke. Yeah, well, and, and that's the thing. Everybody who, even those of us, which I tend to be one of the people who who does lean towards that idea that David did write this— um, we don't believe that the Psalms were, were chronologically ordered. They're, well, they're I mean, ordered by thieves. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, look at, okay, this is a simple example. <laughs> look at any album 
you've you've listened to, almost no one puts their songs on an album in the order they were written chronologically. They That's a really good point. But I mean, they write stuff down, they record stuff, they switch it around, they listen to the songs in different orders, figure out which one flows best into the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you want something to flow seamlessly? Do you want something to have a jarring uh, feel when it goes from something really soft into something really heavy. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's just the basics of of putting songs together. I mean, that's it's an old practice. Now I have like tools, thirteenth step, like playing in my head. So um, that would be a perfect circle. <laughs> oh, oh yes, thank you. <laughs> I, yeah. No, okay. Never mind. We aren't going to go on that rabbit trail. Well, it's the anyway. same singer. I mean, to, to be fair, <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, I don't know why it's a tool. I never listened to tool. I don't care for them um, as much as like perfect circle. Anyway, this particular Psalm is connected to Psalm two and we have these themes that connect back. And so we got this deliverance during a time of attack and we have God's faithfulness for those he loves. We have a humiliation uh, for those who doubt God's deliverance. And then we have this confession of hope in God. So the, this, this, these themes connect us. They, they make this a nice, seamless trans, uh, transition from one psalm to another. And so I, I see why it was placed here. And I think if you read it, you're going to see why, you know, read one psalm to the next. You'll see why they were placed there. And it will make sense if you just use your powers of observation. Now, um, Alter notes that the strength of this psalm is in its simplicity. It's a very direct psalm. There's not a lot of flowery language. It, it, it's to the point. It's bold. It's very brash. Um, it's not as complex as a lot of the other Davidic psalms. And matter of fact, there's only one metaphor in the entire psalm, which is kind of an unusual thing when we think of David writing a psalm, especially, you know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want me, that's full of metaphor. And it doesn't make sense if you realize or if you consider the fact that it might be written during that time when David's on the run. When you're on the run and you might stop to utter a prayer, you're not going to stop and, you know, carefully craft these metaphors and carefully put together these visual images to connect with your audience, you're just going to lay the truth out there and you're going to get it said, you're going to get it done because you've got to get back on the road before the guys behind you catch up. And so it, it, it may lack the, the Davidic flair that we're used to, but the context, if this is a correct context, actually makes a lot of sense. Now, we, when we were looking in Samuel and we were talking about these prayers that David was uttering on the road, we, we noted in those podcasts and that Zamora points out that David is offering these short exclamatory prayers. Mm-hmm. They were not long prayers. So again, we have this circumstantial evidence, and I don't want to say this is an airtight case, but I think there's some really good circumstantial evidence that the style of the psalm actually fits with that period. and. There's other points in here, like the condition David was in when he's making that journey. Remember, he's going with his head covered. It's bowed in mourning. He's crying. He's walking barefoot on the road. And this is going to be important in some of the references we also have in the psalm. We are also going to look at another kind of almost surprising passage that this psalm is connected to. And we're going to get to it later, but I'm just going to throw it out there. It's Jeremiah 9. 
this psalm and Jeremiah 9 are very connected. And we're going to talk about, um, oh, well, yeah, we're going to talk about why that's important. So, no, I've got too many psalms running around in my head. We'll but anyway. Well, <laughs> Didn't you have so, your notes? Well, I did, but I ran through my notes way too fast. Yes, it is. So, um, no, I misread my notes. Uh, so that's actually Jeremiah is going to be connected to Psalm 55. It's been a long, long week. Let's just put it that way. Um, but anyway, uh, the other point, important point of this, this story, too, is we're going to be talking about where David is traveling. Um, David is traveling, we know, to Mount Olive. This is where he he's, uh, is actually making some of the contacts that he makes on the journey. And that that journey is um, important because when we talk about God responding to him in this in the psalm, there's going to be uh, some different theories about exactly how God responds and where God responds from. Is it from Mount Olive or is it from uh, Mount Moriah, which can be seen from Mount Olive, and which is kind of a prefiguring of the temple. So. We'll jump into the psalm now. We'll get there. And uh, I promise this part will make sense. And we'll get back to Jeremiah 9, wherever it fits in. <laughs> so, Perfect. Uh, yeah. I, I never claim to be infallible or without mistake. So anyway, um, you know, model a little Christian grace here. Anyway, verse 1. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are, are rising up against me. Verse two, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. So the the first verse is pretty self-explanatory. David sees himself beset by a multitude of enemies, perhaps um, because much of Israel is actually support, or at least much of Jerusalem is actually supporting Absalom. And we've seen that at least some of Israel believes that David has killed Saul. Remember Hushai and I mean, Shimei, who came out to curse David for killing Saul. We talked about that. But David's really starting to feel the pressure of the fact that he's not just a king who is being accepted universally within the nation. There is some, some doubt about the validity of his claim to the throne. And you know, David's not being overly dramatic here. He's not, he's not hyping the situation for effect. If this was written for him, written by him at this time, he is in one of the most dire situations, probably even more than when he was on the run from Saul, that he's been in in his entire life. Now, the art scroll translation actually follows a midrash that translates many as great. So it's not the number of enemies that surround David, it is the quality of the enemies. And so they they note that David's enemies, I mean, these it's a prestigious list. I mean, you've got um, Saul, you've got Doeg, you've got Shimei, you've got um, the giants and sons of giants. And so that is a valid translation. David doesn't have insignificant enemies. His enemies are important people, and they do have the means to do him serious harm. Even Absalom, his own son, he's a prince of Israel. And so he's significant. And we already know that he has the backing of his grandpa. And, um, you know, he, he's not somebody who comes to, to face David without support. And so the idea that David is facing, you know, real peril isn't even a question, I think, to most uh, biblical scholars. Now, 
verse two states the central question, or more accurately, uh, the primary theology of this psalm. Uh, will God save? Who uh, Who is correct? The person singing the psalm who's saying there are people against me, great or many enemies coming against me to oppress, or is it the enemies who are saying this guy's beyond God's help? God can't even begin to save him. And I, and I find that when I read scripture, it's really helpful for me to read it from both perspectives. So I, I think a lot of us, when we read the Psalms, we see ourselves as the psalmist. We see ourselves kind of in the same situation. And, you know, oh, I, I've been oppressed or, ooh, I'm being attacked. But I think we need to flip it sometimes. Are we the person who looks at someone else and says, you know, it's going to take seven and a half miracles to save that person? Or that person's beyond God's salvation. God, that person's beyond God's grace. And who has the correct perspective? Because people are people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you think about David's situation, think about what it would have been like to view David in this situation where people looked at him and said, you know what? He displaced Saul that we know God chose. I mean, we had this great big ceremony where they cast lots and God confirmed that this is the king. And now David's taking over. Who does he think he is? This guy's a rapist and a murderer. When his own daughter was attacked, he he never spoke up. He can't be God's man. And so we do this today. We we will make these kinds of judgments against other people. And, you know, it's real easy. And we think we're validated and vindicated in doing so. And so I think we need to, to kind of step back sometimes and, and really ask ourselves if we're paying attention to what God's doing or if we're, we're on the wrong side. Uh, because I think it is easy to be swayed, kind of like we were talking at the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. And well, and like we talked about last episode, where you know, we especially in, I mean, I say especially in America. I mean, I'm, I know it's the guy I referenced said it's a problem everywhere, but we tend to see religion as, a, as something to leverage to, for political gain. And you know, and that's on every side of the aisle. I mean, it and it drives me nuts because it's like, okay, I get that what you're wanting to do. Uh, you know, could benefit a lot of people. It could also hurt a lot of people. And that's why we have to be really, really careful when we talk about using our beliefs to advance any kind of political agenda. And mm-hmm. it, it's, and you know, and you know me, I try, I try not to get too political, especially on the show. Um, but I, I just, it, it drives me insane whenever people who otherwise completely ignore the Bible decide all of a sudden that they're going to latch hold of a verse to use to tell me how I should live my faith when they've taken that verse mm-hmm. completely out of context. And we see that all the time. And I, oh, yeah. and I, I think, you know, I think part of what we have here is that it's that exact same type of thing. Uh, maybe not. There's, there's two ways, actually, I could see this playing out. Number one is uh, Absalom's kind of going, well, he's not upholding justice the way I think he should the way mm-hmm. I interpret the the Torah, so mm-hmm. I you know I'm gonna attack him, or that Absalom's going well. My dad does. My dad says he believes it, but he doesn't really live his life in such a way. So I'm just right. going to abandon it altogether. Um, you know, I think there's a couple different ways we can look at it. I would really love to know which one because I mean, there's there's <laughs> a lot of information we don't get about Absalom and his his 
his, you know, his internal monologue. We don't have that. Well, no. And I think it's really interesting that the Bible even makes a point of pointing out that Absalom stayed silent, that he'd said neither good nor evil. And, you know, and the reason why he doesn't say anything is because he hated Amnon. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't get that insight. But at the same time, what's really interesting is Absalom's reaction to his dad, whichever one of those, you know, pathways you want to take, kind of mirrors the way a lot of people view David today. And, you know, why should we listen to David? He was all these terrible things. Why can we say he's a man after God's own heart? Is it right that we celebrate him as the psalmist because he did all these terrible things? And that's actually where the uh, the Jeremiah 9 uh, chapter becomes very important in understanding that. And it is Psalms 55 because my brain clicked into gear. So we'll get there. But that that's, answers that question. And I, I can't wait to talk about that because we forget that knowing God's heart doesn't require perfection. It never did. Understanding what God is experiencing and and going through in this world it is not some kind of validation or, or mark of honor and achievement for a single person for getting it right. And that's the reason why we all need grace. And so I, I do appreciate the fact that God says, hey, I can still be in relationship with you and I can still trust you to to see me and respond to me even if you aren't perfect. And that that's the thing that so many people have a problem with David. He's not perfect. Well, this is good news. We should be happy about this. It means there's hope for each of us to to experience God's heart and right. to follow him. And it doesn't mean that, that we should stop trying. I mean, David obviously faced major consequences for for his disobedience and his rebellion. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, why is he restored? Because he repents. How are we restored? Because we repent. And I, I almost feel like repentance is a dirty word sometime in Christian circles now. Because, you know, God loves us the way we are. And I know we've talked about it before, but it's such a huge issue Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where we act like if he loves us, he lets us do whatever. And I don't know any human relationship where healthy love, respect, honor, consideration allows that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why would we treat God with less respect than we treat our own spouse, our parents, our child, our good friend? And so, um, anyhow, I'll get off that soapbox. So verse three, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the life, um, and the lifter of my head. Sorry. So lifting the head, I mean, again, David is walking. If this is that time period, he's walking up to Mount, all of his head is bowed. He's mourning. This is the only metaphor too in the, the, the entire chapter. God is a shield. Um, Ralph Jacobson actually um, points out that the shield protects all around. So it's the perfect counterpoint for these enemies that are all around and surrounding David, the great many enemies. Uh, And he's a shield that protects from all directions. So this is kind of expanding our view from God. It's not just one direction that we're being protected from. It's every um, direction. And so this this whole psalm is a this particular verse about is reversal. We have the reversal of um, you know enemies surrounding versus God who surrounds, and we have a God who lifts the head, and we've got a God who who arises later on, and this arising 
you know, as a counterpoint for the enemies that arise. So verse four, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. So again, we know that that one stop on Mount Olive, um, the mountain where God was worshiped before the temple was built. And so we, we already know this because we, we've talked about it before in a previous episode. We know that the temple, if you've studied your Bible, is going to be constructed on Mount Moriah. So the rabbis claim that this answer actually came to Mount Moriah and then was seen by David, that he didn't just hear it, but he actually saw it arrive from Mount Moriah to Mount Olive. And this has got some interesting implications when we're talking about God's spirit departing the temple, got some interesting implications when we're talking about Jesus going out to teach on Mount Olive. I'm not going to get into all of those because those are just, those are huge topics that when we do get into them, I want to spend a lot of time on them Mm -hmm. and really um, dissect them. But I want you to see kind of that that little bit of um, little bit of connection there. Now, another way to look at this is that the answer to the prayer does arrive on the holy hill at this point, Mount Olive, like I was talking, and it would be applied to Hushai. And remember in Second Samuel when David had prayed, you know, let um, let the counselor's uh, words be turned to foolishness that. Immediately, Hushai appears on the scene as if in answer to the prayer, and David sends him back to be that first, you know, kind of covert agent of influence that mm-hmm. is going to help, you know, turn things in his direction. So, if that's the case, it fits very well. If this is David writing this, it fits very well that it would be describing that Hushai actually becomes the answer to a prayer. And I do like that because so often, even in our own lives, how often is the answer to a prayer the arrival of another person? And it's the person who loves us, and it's a person who is devoted to our good and is loyal to us. So, um, you know, a lot of times when I when I'm praying for God to do something, He doesn't just show up and take care of it, but He will send a friend along to to be there with me or to help me through a situation. And so, anyway, verse five. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of the, of the many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. The sleep uh, comes when, when somebody is not afraid. This is an act of ultimate trust. This is ultimate faith. This is the ability to say, I can sleep because God does protect me. This isn't just like a throwaway line. This is how deep the trust is and how deep the faith is. How many times when we have an upsetting situation in our life, we lay there in bed, we roll around, we we spin the thoughts around, we we worry about all mm-hmm. the implications and the possible outcomes because we think we've got to fix it. Yeah. We, we think... Yeah, well, and, and that's actually a, kind of a fun bit of trivia, and I don't know how much stock to put into this because, you know, there's a lot of uh, legends surrounding this character is... Um, it's actually so the uh Patrick is credited with being the person to evangelize Ireland and Ireland's credited with being one of the only uh places in history that was largely uh christianized without a great deal of bloodshed um right the um but one of the the legends surrounding him is that his his sleeping patterns and his ability to sleep was one of his witnesses and you know they they cite the <laughs> verse that get, God gives sleep 
rests to his beloved or sleep to his beloved or something. God gives sleep to those he loves. God, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the, and the, the, the Irish, uh, allegedly in the, in the book I was reading, they were saying that, you know, they were, they're used to being in trouble and Patrick, mm-hmm. you know, would sleep through this, but because there was a, a lot of, uh, infighting amongst the clans your life could be at danger at at any time and so the the irish way of dealing with this apparently was to drink yourself out um (laughs) and then and then you have patrick a few people with that same approach (laughs) and then then yeah then yeah i've I've known a few of those um but then you have patrick who you know he gets full rest every night and uh and and isn't worried so um you know sometimes the best witness is to sleep i guess take a nap i don't know <laughs> well i i mean and well and there we go into jesus sleeping on the boat mm-hmm. during the storm and you know this this level of peace that somebody can have that they can say hey i i don't have to fix it all i don't have to take care of it all i can actually just do what i'm responsible to do and turn the rest loose to God. Mm-hmm. I, that's a huge witness. A- and it's not easy. I mean, I tend to be a problem solver in my own life. And sometimes it's like, okay, Lord, if you just, you know, let's move this here and change that there and flip this, it'll all be done. And of course, God's like, you know, that's outside your purview. You need to just back off and let mm-hmm. me handle it. And so, you know, one of the things when I talk to people who are extremely anxious or fearful and, you know, overwhelmed with life, you know, I like to remind them you're responsible for this moment, not, you know, not even 15 minutes down the line, not, not tomorrow, not three years from now, not anything in the past, this moment. And so, you know, we do what's in front of us to do. We take the next right step. Don't overcomplicate it and leave the rest to God because that belongs to him, not us. Mm -hmm. And until he presents it to us, you know, the present presents it to us, we aren't responsible for it. And that's hard. I mean, it took, it took a lot of, um, practical application to make that a reality (laughs) in my life. But, you know, he, he really emphasizes in this verse that he refuses to be afraid of his enemies. And he is, going to to rise up because he can trust in God. And no matter how many enemies there are, it doesn't matter. Because I think sometimes we have this way of saying, well, you know, if it was just the water bill that was late, or if it was just the car that was broken down, or if it was just the dog that was sick, but it's all of those things. It doesn't matter how many. It it, it doesn't matter how uh, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, there's always going to be something, uh, going on it, it the life is life but one, right. one, other, one other thing i do want to say real quick um this is i know there are a lot of uh a lot of people who like to read chapters like this and there's two ways they go and one is if i if you don't have any enemies you're not living your life right um i i don't mm-hmm. think that's true i uh, because paul specifically says as much as it depends on you live at peace with those around you uh you know right that we're specifically instructed on that so you know the, then the other way to go about it is is trying to invent enemies or make everything that <laughs> is an is an, a minor inconvenience into one of those things that's coming against me because i'm so righteous and holy and god has such an important plan for me god has things he wants to do with you that's absolutely true 
but I think sometimes mm-hmm. we get a little too far into some self-aggrandizing theology uh, when we get into this, oh, the, the car didn't start, the devil's out to get me kind of thing. <laughs> you know, and, and well, so we, we have and... to work it in balance because, I mean, when, you, when David wrote this, he wasn't just saying, you know, oh, someone burnt my toast, so my, right. know, my life is terrible. People were literally trying to kill him, specifically his son. Uh, you know, that's kind yeah. of a big deal. Well, and you know what? So what if the devil's out to get you? I, I, I let, Let's just <laughs> pause on a second, uh, for a second on that one. <laughs> the devil might be out to get me. Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of a given. If you're truly living for God, it, it is. But when we start giving him so much credit that he might be able to thwart God's plans for our lives and our purpose that God has set out before us, you aren't worshiping God anymore. You are actually saying that the devil is more powerful than God. You know, too many people are focused on Satan. Don't do that. And, you know, I I recently had an experience uh, where there was, for lack of a better word, and I almost hate to use this word, supernatural paranormal activity. And this person that I was with started freaking out. And I'm like, why? Why are you doing that? You, every time you see something like that, every time you experience something like that, your first instinct should be turning back to God and putting your gaze back on him. You know what? The Bible tells us God inhabits the praise of his people. So you know where God is. Let's, let's praise him. Let's make a home for him. Let's make some kind of throne for him to sit on. And where God is, the enemy doesn't have any power. So why are you wasting time? worried about what the enemy's going to do. He mm-hmm. has no power that's beyond anything God allows him. So if we're focused on God, we've got all the answers we need. We've got all the help and strength we need. Stop trying to to control things that are not yours to control. Yeah. So well, anyway. I, I, well, and I, I got to throw this story out here too. I recently, <laughs> I, I say recently, I don't know, it's been a couple months now, but I had a conversation with someone who, and they asked me what I thought about UFOs. And I said, well, first off, if it's flying and you don't know what it is, <laughs> by definition, it's a UFO, uh, to which he said, well, what do you think of aliens? And I said, I would need to see more proof before I really make, an, uh, you know, before I really make uh, a decision on that. Because number one, I mean, the universe is really big. And, right. and, and so I don't think God's incapable of creating life on other planets. It doesn't. It doesn't matter to me until it intersects. I mean, that's you. You believe that God is actually omnipotent, like yeah, the Bible you can says do he is. He wants. Uh, um, I I'm not <laughs> narcissistic enough to think that God only made humans. I mean, <laughs> obviously the Bible says he made other creatures and other realms right? and realities. I guess if you want to say like the spiritual realm. So I mean, we already are dealing with two overlapping realms. But anyway, that's. <laughs> a whole nother topic if we want to get into cosmic uh, geography, but that's going to be a whole nother show. But uh, go check out Tim's. <laughs> yeah, go check out Tim Stedman. Out- get o- get over to answers to giant questions. Um, but uh, I I said you know I I kind of gave him that that bit about you know God can do whatever he wants, and he and he said well I think we're going to start seeing more quote unquote proof because I think it's going to be used by. Uh, it's going to start being used to trick people into worshiping demons. And I'm like, why are we worried about this? 
Like, why are we going to be worried about whether or not people are going to be tricked into worshiping demons? It's already happening. I mean, right. And, right. and, and there, there is, it's, it's like you said, it's a given. There's a spiritual realm that the enemy wants to take down as many people as he can, but we have to look at it as he's trying to blow up the bases he's retreating. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. kind of what's, what's going on. And so, um, we, like you said, we don't need to worry about it. We need to worry about what God says and what he wants. And uh, if we keep our focus there, we're don't, we don't have to worry about every time a book falls off the shelf. Yeah. I, I, well, and, you know, building on this, I did not mean to get in this rabbit trail. Number one, and I'm seeing a lot of talk about, oh, my gosh, you're going to receive the mark of the beast if you do this, that, or the other. I mean, we've always, every generation has had their version of the mark of the beast. Let's just get that out of the way. Debit um, cards. You were in debit cards yeah. were, you know, when I was a kid. Social credit security cards, cards. Social security number. Um your iPhone. Your Yeah. Every teeny tiny thing that, that is new apparently is the mark of the beast. So I don't know how many yeah. marks everyone has by now. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. You're never going to accidentally get the mark of the beast. Okay, let's just be clear about that. You're, it's not going to happen. You're never going to accidentally somehow condemn yourself. This is an act of rebellion. So, you know, just rest. Keep focused on God. He's going to guide you. Yeah, it, well, and, and I, you know, I think a lot of the interpretations about the mark of the beast are, are incorrect. I still don't know what it is uh, and exactly <laughs> how it is, because I, I tend to, you know, I, there's, there's a whole lot in Revelation that we just gets misinterpreted but let's say for example we are living in let's say for example if the rapture is the real thing and they are you know the world falls into the hands of satan do you think he's going to be at that point not arrogant enough to just flaunt it because at that point he's wanting deliberate abject worship not this covert not this behind the scenes not the subtle temptations anymore at that point, it's going to be something beyond what we have have thought of. So, it, yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't think it's going to be an accidental thing. I think it's going to be one of those things. And I don't even know, what did our podcast just become? We got like way out there. <laughs> uh, this show is off the rails. Um, but it, it, Oddities, oddities. Oddities, yeah. But I, I think it's, I, I don't think at that point, that that Satan or the divine <laughs> divine rebel or whatever you want to classify him uh, is going to to at that point be so subtle as to uh, just just make it something he's going to have to sneak in. It, it's going well, to be something that is no, this is allegiance, and I'm going to get all the worship that I think I deserve is what it's going to turn into at that point with this character. Well, and I think, you know, people hear antichrist. And so they, they, they think there's going to be a Christ-like figure, not necessarily something that's against Christ, which is what antichrist means. And so we have to trust that God will be faithful to his word. He will reveal himself to his people. He will protect our hearts and minds if we keep hiding away in him. We keep putting that scripture in our minds. We keep studying. We keep doing what we know we're supposed to do. And so it really becomes a matter of who do you trust to keep their word more? God or Satan? And God says he's going to protect those he loves. So, you know, trust him. It, it, it really is that simple. But like you said, we, we've gone off the rails. So um, 
<laughs> we haven't gone anyway. that far off the rails in a long time, but that was fun. I know. Uh, I, I, I guess... Y'all guys have no idea how much I control myself when we're rec- we are recording. <laughs> Nathan does. And I can I th- seem like brace for it sometimes. <laughs> I think they're getting a clue. Let's keep going. <laughs> okay. So now verse four through six, these verses are just crazy. They're a jumble of, of verbal tenses. So um, this has resulted in some debate. Uh, are these past completed events that the psalmist are talking about? Are they future acts? Are they current acts? Now, I really like simple solutions. And Richard Clifford actually provides us with a great solution. And he reads this as kind of being jumbled with a purpose, as referring to, yes, there are those completed acts that I can look back to and I can say, this is how I know God is faithful. This is stuff happening in this moment that I can see as evidence and proof that God is still faithful. And I'm going to have faith because of these things to look forward and and know that God will be faithful and and continually as I move forward in my own life. So I I don't think that we have to limit it to one tense or the other because the psalmist didn't, at least in the version we have. And so the idea that the psalmist might actually hint towards the idea that God actually transcends time shouldn't take us as a surprise. So. Um, evidently I decided that verse four and six, I wasn't really going to go into. So verse seven <laughs> says, Oh, rise, O Lord, save me. Oh my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. So the psalmist asked that God give what, give to, uh, what his enemies had said God would not give so that the, the enemies are saying, Hey, this person can't be saved. And so the the psalmist is saying, give me what they said you will deny me, is basically what he's saying. And in doing so, the enemies would be shown to be false. And then he asked that God's salvation is a direct attack against the mouths, the voices that are being used to attack the psalmist. So, uh, you know, you strike the cheek, you break the teeth. And so it's kind of an eye for an eye almost. And this is kind of really hard for Christians sometimes to wrap their mind around that, that the, um, that God would actually begin to use violence to silence people who, who were, um, evil and wicked. You know, God's not supposed to do that. God's not supposed to use any sort of force. He's just supposed to be rainbows, butterflies, and puppies. Um, but when you're facing a violent enemy, sometimes you fight fire with fire. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that now. Um, One of the things that the Jewish commentators picked up on that the Christian commentators didn't, which I found to be interesting, is that the psalmist uses two names for God here. He says, Arise, O Lord. Now, if you've been following us for a while, you know that when you see Lord in all capital letters in the Bible, that is Yahweh. That's the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And whenever the writers of the Bible use this, typically what they're saying is, the God who delivered us from Egypt, the one who delivered us from the, the oppression of Pharaoh and, you know, saved our lives as we passed through the Red Sea and protected us in the desert, that's the God I need. I, I need the God of mercy and care and the one who's going to provide for me in this moment when everything else is failing. 
And when he says in the next line, save me, oh my God, that's Elohim. This is the divine judge. This is the one who enacts justice. And this is the one who makes sure that people do not get away with hurting the ones that God has said he's going to protect. And so you, the psalmist recognizes there's these two attributes to God and the, these these two sides of God almost that you have to hold in tension because if you don't have holiness with love, then you have love that just allows itself to be walked all over and becomes a doormat. And this becomes codependent and toxic in so many different ways. If you just have justice and no love, then we're all doomed. Mm -hmm. And so the psalmist is saying, I, I need both sides of who you are. I need all of who you are. And so Verse eight, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. So God alone is the one who determines who's going to be saved. You know, salvation belongs to him and his blessing is on who his people. So Alter finds this inclusion of people, which is plural, odd, because the up to this point, the psalm has been very individual in nature. It hasn't been inclusive of others. Mm-hmm. And it, it might be that that would be odd if we were just talking about any random person, but we have to remember who David is. If David wrote this, he's the king of Jerusalem. And so his status, his condition actually impacts the people he rules mm-hmm. and it impacts all of the land. So it's fitting that a psalm spoken by the king, who is God's representative to the nation, would include a prayer for everyone. And, you know, and I think it's a really fitting psalm for for us as believers today. I mean, we are a royal priesthood, and we need to recognize our spiritual condition actually impacts those around us. And so we have an obligation as royal priests, as as sons of the the true God and of the, the king of this universe and king of our lives to live as well as we can. And we need to we need to be praying that God takes care of us so that people can see that in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is not a prosperity gospel kind of, oh, just name it and claim it kind of thing. But I'm talking about being well and being whole, being at shalom, that nothing missing, nothing broken kind of idea that we would exhibit that. And you know what? You can do that whether you're dirt poor and eating ramen every night, or whether you are eating caviar every night. it We have that within us, and we find that, oh, I say within us, because there's a, the God who dwells within us provides it, not outside circumstance. And so we have it within the our ability to actually rise to these occasions and present the world with hope. And uh, our mother. <laughs> I thought I had said that to do not disturb. I know I did. Okay. Um, anyway. They know what to expect here nowadays. Yeah, yeah. So this this declaration is saying that he, all of this hope that he's been exhibiting throughout the throughout the psalm, it really is rooted in the person of God. And, you know, Jacobson uh, talked about the various applications that this psalm might have had. It, it, he presented it like it's mostly speculation. And so it was prayed for someone who, um, who might have been seeking asylum at the temple, uh, that the psalm was prayed when someone accused of a crime came before the courts by a king prior to battle on the, by someone who was sick or on behalf of someone who's sick. And like I said, that, that was presented as being very speculative, 
However, we do know that this is a bedtime prayer in Judaism. This is an ex- you know very traditional prayer to to be uh, sang or sung or whatever. Forget my English here for a moment because it does talk about being able to sleep. Sure. And you know, sleeping is such a vulnerable time, but we've already talked about that. And so I, you know, I did find it like appropriate um, in the season. I don't want to talk about COVID too much. Um, we already addressed that we don't want to do that. But when I was going through this, Ty and I were actually in our little individual quarantine because we thought that we might have it. We'd been exposed. And so, um, you know, I was thinking about how you, you do pray these prayers during those times. And you do remind yourself that God is the one who's going to uh, protect and defend during these seasons. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was a very, very good psalm to pray. And, you know, when you're sick, you don't care about all the flowery language. There is kind of that sense of urgency because we did have something. We, we don't know what it was, but you know, we're better now, so I'm not too worried about it. But it was appropriate that it, it was um, arrived in my life at that moment to actually sit down and, and, and think about. So um, that's kind of all I have to say about Psalm 3. But let's go ahead and get started on Psalm 55. We're not going to get through all of this one in, in one episode, I promise. Um, so just, you know, hang in there and let it, um, let it soak in. Psalm 55 is a very interesting Psalm for so many reasons. So I'm, I'm going to kind of give an overview of, of what makes it a very difficult Psalm to parse. And again, this is a Psalm that is attributed to David also possibly while he was on the run. It's a lament for Ahithophel. Um, But the first reason why it's a a difficult psalm is the grammar is atrocious. It's jumbled. It's hard to decipher. Uh, There's places where Alter even calls it unintelligible. The writer switches back and forth between talking about a single attacker and a multitude of attackers. And there, there doesn't seem to be much rhyme or reason in these kind of jumps of perspective and thought. And so I want to talk about some reasons why it's really not, um, it's really not surprising if you think about it in context. Mm -hmm. So because we have most, uh, particularly the, this, bouncing back and forth between a single attacker and multiple attackers, there's this theory out there that this was originally two psalms. And somebody said, hey, these kind of fit together. Let's let's just make one psalm out of them. And we weren't really given any kind of reason in that theory, just that for some reason, someone might have thought it was a good idea. And while some people think this is a solution, I actually think it's more of a problem or creates more of a problem because why would someone do that? Uh, hey, I, I, I've, I've done that before in, in worship services. You, you attack stuff together sometimes, you know, you make a medley. Well, this is the reason why we, we need like people who actually know how music works and not me. Uh, <laughs> Ask the musician the... and not the Bible scholar turn the radio on and I sing along. This is as good as it gets. Okay. <laughs> well, hey, that chord progression's the same. Let's just tack these together and see see if it works. 
You know, that's, that's actually a really good point because I hadn't thought about it. Because yes, these are being sang. So if you if you sing them and the chord progressions do work, then that makes more sense than if you just have the lyrics. And so, okay, well, quit being smart. Uh, well, there goes so. four pages of notes. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Pretty much, but no. no. <laughs> um, but the, I, I think the overall, the thing that that we come around, uh, come away with, is that it did make sense to someone that we do have this switching back and forth between a multitude and a single attacker. Whether it is David writing or it's an editor later, it doesn't matter. Someone said this makes sense, and so it it's really funny to me how many times things like this confound uh biblical scholars because i think it makes sense and y'all y'all are going to see why either a little later today or or next episode but would would it have any would it have anything to do with uh switching back and forth between the idea of an army and the person who leads the army there you go see it's not that complicated It, it it makes sense we've got ahithophel who who's stirring up the masses and, and and you know, leading all this bitterness within uh, Absalom's court to to cause them to rise up against David and stay you know firm in their commitment against David, and you know it's one person who, who is really fueling the fires, and we're going to see that as we move forward in Second Samuel, and, and so it it's not that complicated. And I think sometimes these really smart people who, I mean, and I'm not saying that sarcastically, I mean, really smart people who do some amazing work in the Bible overcomplicate this. And sometimes you just need to bring it back to to bare bones human experience. And so for me, it, it makes sense that this could be written by David at this point in time. And so... The question is, is did David write a psalm that accurately describes his circumstance as he experienced them? Or did some scribe somewhere say, hey, when these two psalms go together, they actually reflect this moment in David's life. So let's ascribe this to him. Or did some scribe actually decide to put two together to make it about David? Now, I think Occam's razor actually says David writing it makes the most sense. But again, that's in debate. That's just my personal view. So the the grammatical issues, uh, and I'm not going to like go like super deep. I, I just want to kind of give an overview of what we're, we're dealing with here. We have five words that only appear in this psalm. They do not show up anywhere else in the Bible. We have four words where the Hebrew is just completely crazy unclear. And we have 10 lines where the syntax which is how the words fit together and, and tense and, and mood and all of that do not, they're difficult. Let's just put it that way. As far and, as, okay. And I'm going to throw this out here. You're going to hate me for this. I'm sure. But um, <laughs> the syntax and, and verb tense changes and stuff like that. I'm like, it's songwriting. Listen to the wallflowers. Jacob Dylan <laughs> switches verb tenses <laughs> all the time in the middle of a sentence. Well, and that's why we have to pay attention to genre. I mean, and this is why people who are not artists don't see these things. Now, you're better with the musical side of things. I see the visual side of things. It's not that difficult. 
And, and, you know, this has confused people over and over again. And it's just because I, we can't just let a song be a song. Yeah. I mean, and and maybe it's not as polished as some of the other songs. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you got the demo track. (laughs) (laughs) But if you, if you read like this chapter in in various English translations, you're going to see that there is some, some pretty significant discrepancies between the translations. This is why, because they're trying to smooth all that out instead of just putting out what's like some translations are trying to smooth them out uh, instead of just putting down what's on the page. And we're going to talk about some of the the discrepancies and why I like some better than others. Now, um, then this is where Jeremiah nine came in. Okay. What happened was, I got to explain myself. The way I wrote down that Jeremiah 9 was part of one of the Psalms was actually written in the same spacing as my note for Psalm 3. And sometimes I go by the spacing and what I think I've written instead of actually reading what's on the page. Silly me. But (laughs) anyway, but the, the Jeremiah 9 connection is going to be very important because there's a question about which came first, Psalm three, uh, Psalm 55 or Jeremiah 9. If Jeremiah 9 came first, then the writer of the psalm is taking these emotions that God says he is experiencing and placing them into a human experience. Mm-hmm. If the psalm comes first, then we have God saying these human emotions are what God experiences. And, you know, this kind of interconnectedness between humanity and God is not something that we think of as being an Old Testament concept. We kind of reserve that for the New Testament when Jesus walks on earth. And we're going to talk about how this actually becomes a very um, important piece of that puzzle in trying to understand how David is a man after God's own heart. Because now we have David and God expressing the exact same emotions. And I think that's really fascinating because we need to know that God was real in the Old Testament, just like God, uh, Jesus is real to us New Testament believers. Mm-hmm. And that, cause that, that changes the way you read the Old Testament. If you really do think that the ancient people just worshipped a bunch of carved out rocks or pieces of wood— absolutely no power, and that even God himself somehow fit into this ancient mindset where gods and, and spirits and the spirit realm were this kind of this abstract, uh, pseudo-religious uh, explanation for scientific phenomenon, you're going to miss the point of a lot of the biblical scriptures. Oh, yeah. And so you need, <laughs> yeah, you need to see how God interacted with his people. And he isn't some distant being. The God of the Old Testament is not some way out there God who doesn't interact with his creation. This is the God who who shakes Sinai while the while the multitudes are watching. This is the God who leads them with a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night through the desert. This is the God who shows up in person in the, the angel of the Lord. So when we talk about God participating in the in the lives and the experiences of humanity that's not a new testament oh wow everything's changing moment this is a continuation of a process that was set in place from the beginning of time when god walked in the garden with adam and eve 
God being a part of human experience was always his intent. And everything that happens within the Bible is the process of bringing humanity back to that place where we can experience God all over again. And so um, I just realized, okay, sorry. Uh, So, you know, that I thought my, my mic stopped recording. We've got to hang on to that truth and realize that we're a part of this history that began in the in the beginning mm-hmm. and, and it, it will continue throughout eternity. And so I, I think sometimes we forget that that God wants to be with us. God wants to be a part of our world, uh, not in a little you know, mermaid kind of way, but in a very real, tangible way. And we are that loved. We are that significant, both as a race, but as individuals. Mm-hmm. And so we can't, I, I, I talk to a lot of people who, who say that they think God's forgotten them or that God doesn't care or God doesn't want to be a part of their lives. We have this entire book that is filled from beginning to end with examples of not only how God wants to be a part of his life, a part of our lives, but how he showed up and he did participate and he was an active vital part of the lives of all the people who believed in him and there's no reason to think that that has changed between then and now so yeah and then when they look at uh, it they go well why does he care about that when they start looking right (laughs) at all the things that are listed you know you look at the you look at the torah and all the details of the the laws and the things like well why does he care about that you know well he cares about people. Well, it's something he cares about. And he, he, he designed us. He knows how we work. He knows what's best. We only want God to care about the things we want him to care about. Everything else, you know, he just needs to ignore. Right. And right. so I mean, it's, it's this complete double standard. I mean, I saw um, something on Facebook the other day about, you know, why does God care about who I sleep with? And it's like, okay, I know you're going to shoot me for this. As human beings, so much of our time is spent thinking about who we will or have slept with. Why would we think God doesn't care about what makes up such a significant part of our lives? And I mean, that's kind of a blunt way to put it because we think about spouses and having children and that sort of thing. And you talk to any single person. What are they thinking about? Who am I going to go out with a date on a date with next? Who will I marry? Who will I have kids with? So much of our lives is formed around that concept of that person I sleep with being so important to me, mm-hmm. whether it's just in that moment or it is for your entire life. Why wouldn't God care about who you slept with? Because it it, it just makes sense. Anyway, so now that we've been all over creation with our discussion today. <laughs> All over the map here today. So that means there's somewhere for you to join in the conversation. Uh, Raven Creek SC on all the social media. RavenCreekSC.com is the website. Check out show notes. Give us a message. Let us let us know uh, if you if you kept track or not. <laughs> so, this is what happens when we don't record for two weeks. Yeah. It's like all the stuff gets built up and then just that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, go hit us up on the website or the social media. Check out some of the other shows, the show notes for this show or whatever you want to do. Um, rate us, review us, share us with a friend. That's probably the 
Maybe kind, not about this episode. Those pick, are pick another one. Probably the <laughs> kindest things. I mean, unless you really liked this episode, then go for it. Um, but those are probably the kindest things you can do for us. Um, but in the meantime, we will see you on the internet. Uh, so have a good one. Bye. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.